Welcome back to We Are YA. I'm your host, Felicity, and joining me this season will be some of our biggest names in young adult literature. From bestsellers to debut voices, we'll go behind the book and explore the world of an author in 2020. Today on the show is Sabah Tahir, the number one New York Times bestselling author of An Ember in the Ashes series, which has been translated into over 35 languages. She grew up in the California's Mojave Desert at her family's 18-room motel. There, she spent her time devouring fantasy novels, raiding her brother's comic book stash, and playing guitar badly. She began writing Ember in the Ashes while working nights as a newspaper editor. She likes thunderous indie rock, garish socks, and all things nerd. Saba lives in San Francisco Bay Area. Saba, welcome to the show. Thank you, Felicity. I'm so excited to be here. I am so excited to have you because, as you know, behind the scenes, I am probably one of your biggest fans. Uh, you are the best. You're amazing. <laughs> in a way that can sometimes be by, viewed by people as obnoxious, but I don't care. Never, <laughs> never. I will fight them. Um, I have to say, first off, the, first off, Time Magazine recently named Ember and Torch as one of the best, both of them too, as one of the best hundred fantasy novels of all time. Um, what was that like? Um, you know, that was really wild because I was actually on this panel, um, to help sort of pick and I did not know that my books were on the list. Oh my <laughs> so, God. So, like, so, um, it was sort of interesting because I, you know, I gave my input on, I nominated books that, you know, were really meaningful to, to me. Um, or that I found were really meaningful, or that I found were probably very meaningful to, you know, um, fantasy as a whole. I had to limit myself because, you know, it was, we were told very specifically that it was fantasy. So there were a lot of authors, you know, like, um, um, you know, who, who I, who I, who were, or who are not fantasy. And so that mm. was a little bit tricky, but um then you know we got the list and I was like wow you know I didn't realize that there would be <laughs> two of my books on there so I was really really excited it was um it was really a wonderful <laughs> surprise um and that's... perhaps that's why the the people who I, I mean I kind of noticed that everybody who was sort of like they they had a panel that was also all time so it wasn't like we were the only judges D but I right. you know it was like they kind of did the initial stuff and then we later you know, put it in our input, at least that's, that was my experience. But, um, but I, I, I kind of noticed that everyone had a, a book on there. So I was wondering, I was like, maybe that's why they, they chose nice. us. I, I don't know. I, I, I do not dare try to plumb the mysteries of Time Magazine, but it was very I, cool. I, I, <laughs> I, I, I mean, it would have been amazing too. I would love it if there was a, each a secret panel for the author that you had to talk about, whether we get the book on the list or not, like some see like the, the organization that would have, would have been requiring. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. No, it, and it was a well-deserved honour. I think, you know, it came beautifully this year at a moment where we're heading into the end of the series. But I want to take you back to the very beginning and ask, when, you, when did you kind of know that you first wanted to be a writer? And then the next part of that is, when did you know you could actually pull it off? Um, I think that writing for me was not an option until... I was in my twenties. Mm. Even then it wasn't really an option. I never was like, I want to be a writer because that didn't seem realistic to me. Um, I needed to pay the bills. I needed a job that gave me healthcare. Um, I didn't have any fallbacks. Um, I find it really, um, I find it really sort of 
strange when you'll meet authors who are like, you know, even if you have to quit your job, you know, keep, keep writing because it's like, that's really not an option for some people. For, yeah. For um, a lot of people. Yeah. For a lot of people like, you know, you can't quit your job or, you know, you can't like, you know, leave your kid at grandma's so that you can write like those, those are not mm, options. Mm. So, um, so I, I was working, I was an editor at the Washington post. I was a copy editor. Um, I worked on their international desk and, um, that was my focus because that's what paid the bills. And I really enjoyed it. I loved that job. Um, I still miss it sometimes. It's a, it's a really fun gig. Um, and somewhere in there, you know, I got the idea to write Ember and I started writing it, but I still didn't think of myself as a writer. And it really wasn't until oh. about three years in, I had at that point quit my job. My first child was born and I was writing probably um, anywhere from 10 to 20 hours a week that's all I could really manage <laughs> um, mm. because, because children take up a lot of time. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, um, but that, that is when I started thinking myself of thinking of myself as a writer. And I remember the moment generally, like, I don't remember like, you know, what I was wearing or anything like that, but I remember <laughs> being in a coffee shop, probably a Starbucks right. and somebody sitting down like at the table like this you know back when we could sit next to people we didn't know um um, and they you know was it was a woman and she was like oh you know what what do you do we were just started chatting and I said I'm a writer and it was the first time I was like oh I am a writer that's my job that's the thing that I do right so I was I was 20 I think I was I think I was 29 or 30 when that happened Mm. <laughs> I, I I find it, and I think it's for for young aspiring writers that are listening to this. I would they would find it startling. I would say to hear you say that you had already started writing the the story of book one of An Ember in the Ashes, and you still hadn't thought of yourself as a writer at that point. No, because I think that thinking yourself as a writer is like um, it's like a flex, as the kids mm. say, right? <laughs> like you have to believe um in in yourself you have to you are you like I always tell people who message me and say I want to be a writer um but I feel weird calling myself that I always tell them if you write you're a writer Mm. because that's something I wish someone had told me um you know my husband it's sort of funny my husband used to always describe me as a writer long before I did you know, people were like, oh, you know what, you know, what does your wife do? You'd be like, oh, she's a writer. And I, I always felt uncomfortable with that because I was like, well, I, you know, I haven't really, you know, I haven't really gotten anything published. Yeah. And he's like, well, you know, you're not a published author yet, but you're a writer, you know? Mm. So, um, so I do think that it's about ownership. It's about owning the title and having the confidence to own the title. And I did not for a long time. Mm. Mm. That's, uh, yeah, I think it's, I think so many people see, you know, acclaimed, esteemed, best-selling authors and think that, that, that is in them from the beginning. But it's, I think it's, you know, almost reassuring to hear that it's not, that everyone needs to learn their way into their own confidence in some capacity. Yeah, and I mean, I loved to write. I loved telling stories since I was a little kid, right? Like, it's, the, mm-hmm. it's sort of the thing my, my mother would joke about that, you know, I would go on these long walks with her and tell, tell her these, like, never-ending stories, you know? Mm. Um, or, you know, that, that in class, it was like the one subject that I never had any issues with was, you know, writing and storytelling. <laughs> um, you know, I, I definitely love stories. I used to give my friends get stories as gifts for like their birthdays. Um, oh. it was, it was, you know, that's something that I really, really enjoyed. Um, but I did, still didn't think of myself as a writer. 
Oh, I, I think that's a beautiful gift. What a lovely gift is the story. Oh, my God. They were awful. They were terrible, bad, <laughs> ridiculous stories. They were always focused on death because I was, like, super morbid as a teenager. So, yeah. Angst. Angst is what we all want Angst at that age. Death. We yes. just love it all, love it all. Well, you mentioned that you were on the you were on the copy edit desk at the Washington Post when the, sort of the story came to you and came to be. Talk us through how that process was in terms of the idea of an ember in the ashes. So I um... – I had been writing sort of a book of like memories, memoirs, I guess you'd call it my memoirs. Mm -hmm. Um, And I I don't know why I was writing them. I wasn't, you know, I wasn't sitting there thinking like, I'm going to publish these. It was more like I just wanted to write. I needed that outlet. So I was writing them and I was telling my mom like, oh, you know, I'm trying to write this book and I don't know, it's really bad. And she finally, I think, got sick of hearing me whine and said, why don't you write a fantasy? And I think that that planted the seed Mm -hmm. in my brain. Then when I was working at the post, I came across one particular um, summer, I came across uh, a story of Kashmiri women um, whose fathers and sons and brothers and husbands are taken by the local military and thrown into prison. And there's not really an explanation for why. Um, And there's not really a way for them to save their family members. It's sort of like once they're in, they just got to hope that eventually they'll come out. And it really stuck with me because my family is Pakistani. That's my ethnic heritage. And Um, you know, that very well could be my family if I happen to live in Kashmir, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So that that really stuck with me. And it sort of combined with a bunch of other stories in my head that I had been reading for a couple of years at that point. So um, the Sudanese genocide, which had been going on for a few years, Um, the Liberian Civil War had recently, I think, ended at that point. Um, I had been thinking about, you know, child soldiers in, in the Congo, um, the, the DRC, I actually don't know if it's called the DRC anymore, but um, it, at the time it was called the Democratic Republic of Congo. So, you know, the child soldiers in, in that part of the world, um, extrajudicial jailings, which were going on, you know, extraordinary renditions, which is something that, you know, America had sort of a, a, a hand in. Um, all of these things were kind of swirling through my head. And um, I, I hadn't read a book that had things like that in in it. Um, and I definitely hadn't read a fantasy that had those things in it. And so mm. I I started th- imagining, you know, this, um, I started imagining this girl, you know, whose brother is taken um, and she's got to get him back. And that, so that was half of it, right? And then the other half was one night there was this awful storm. I lived in Washington, DC and, um, summer storms in Washington, D.C. are like, can be very violent. And so <laughs> there was this big storm and it was, you know, pouring rain. And I was in the basement of the house where I was living. And um, I saw these two glowing eyes outside mm-hmm. the, the window. Um, and I ran into my room and hid because I was like, that's a gin. Um, and then when I woke up the next morning, I was like, that was actually probably just a raccoon <laughs> or like a cat. Um, yeah. But but at the time, you know, it really, really felt like it was a gin. And so that was actually the first that the character of the Nightbringer came to me. And I sort of felt like he kind of came to me and like, you know, grabbed me by the throat and said, I've got a story to tell and you're going to tell it for me. Um, So all of those things combined really ended up, um, ended up being the the, the genesis for Ember. Mm -hmm. And what was it like? So you write this story and then you go out to pitch it out to publishing and probably at that time and, you know, even still now, there wasn't a lot of stories that are like this out there at the moment. Were you nervous about, would anyone be interested? Was it, was there fear, trepidation? So I was very, very nervous going to agents, interestingly. 
right? I was super, super nervous going to agents because I knew that finding an agent was really difficult and like Mm -hmm. nobody could get an agent and I was very nervous. And I remember I had um, a woman who I I had um, hired as a, a freelance editor earlier on in the process. Like I just needed someone to kind of tell me if my book made any sense or not. Mm-hmm. Um, and her name is uh, Kathy Yardley. You will see her in the acknowledgments if you read the book. I thank her in every single book because actually she, she kind of became a mentor to me. Mm. So I would talk to her as I was writing every single book and talk out the ideas and, and kind of get her feedback. Um, and Kathy had read an earlier version and, you know, given me some some feedback and sort of asked, helped me pick my own brain, try to figure out what was going wrong with the story. And then I'd worked on it quietly for a couple of years and hadn't really said anything to her. And then I, you know, reached back out to her and said, you know, hey, can you read it? And she she read it just because she's a wonderful person. You know, she she she, she had promised that she would read it again when I was ready. So she read it and she wrote me something that will always stick with me. She said if you don't sell this, I will eat my keyboard. Whoa. And I remember thinking, you know, she's not a very, she's not, a, she's not someone who's super, you know, that's not, just not the type of thing that she would say unless right. she really meant it, you know? Yeah. And so she's, she's not sort of like a exaggerated type um, yep. or hyperbole type. And so I, I was like, wow. And, and her belief in me kind of took away some of that fear because I was like, well, if Kathy believes in me, then maybe it'll be okay. Mm. Um, and then I started getting the offers from agents. And then when it came time to actually sell the book, I was a little nervous, but what I find really wonderful is my agent, whose name is, is Alexandra Machinist. She was so confident that she was going to sell it. Like she was mm-hmm. so sure that I actually was like, oh, okay, I guess this is not, you know, I guess I've already jumped over that. And I had no idea but actually that's where many stories go to die is the acquisitions room. Right. Right. I I didn't know that because I knew nothing about book publishing. I knew nothing about YA publishing. I didn't have any friends in the wine world. I didn't Mm -hmm. understand how it worked. I knew how book publishing worked. I knew, you know, you get an agent, you sell to a publisher, the publisher pays you in advance. I understood the mechanics of it, but I didn't really get the acquisitions process very much. Um, and so it wasn't until after that I realized that it really hadn't been a sure thing, but she had this sort of staunch belief in the book and in its ability to sell mm. and that that was such a gift Yeah. Um, because she then conveyed that to, you know, who she was talking to, you know, which ended up being Penguin and, you know, mm. it all worked out. Here it we did. are. Well, and that's, <laughs> uh, and yeah, four books later, things have gone well. <laughs> But yeah. that sort of also to that point of that staunch belief really did power because it really in 2015 when it was published burst out of the gates. Like it was an instant bestseller. It became incredibly acclaimed and beloved. Did you feel like was it the switch then of, oh, oh, I have to deliver now? And there was pressure? Did you feel that instantly or was it a building sensation or did it not come at all? No, no, I, I, I felt it. <laughs> I felt it. And I felt it, I actually felt it before Ember came out. So, um, you know, there is a, um, there is a thing that happens when, you know, your book is acquired and people have a lot of hopes for it. And mm-hmm. that is that you begin, you begin as an author to understand that there are hopes that your book will perform a certain way. And no one's going to, you know, kill you if it doesn't perform that way. Like, no one's going to be like, we hate your face, never comes around here no more. Like, that's not, that's not what's going to happen. But, so exactly, yeah, you know, that, that's not how it is. But, um, but I could tell that there was this hope sort of building around the book because 
there hadn't and, and it wasn't just hope from the publisher it was also hope from you know readers who had read it early mm-hmm. from from people who had read it early and who really supported it and loved it and were like you know this book should be big because there isn't anything like it right now um and it could be a game changer like that mm-hmm. that is i remember having those conversations with 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 booksellers and 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 being both deeply deeply flattered but also very nervous mm. because i was like but what if it's not yeah like what if it's not that thing what if nobody reads this what if nobody you know changes how they think because of this book and what if you know no writer is inspired because of this book and right like, ah, what if what if and um and so that was a lot of pressure and it was really worrying to me and i angsted a lot mm. and um you know thankfully everything worked out and that's that's an awesome and wonderful thing but I think it it worked out not because of um just sheer luck though I'm sure that was a part of it you Mm. know I always I'm religious and so I always you know you know thank God for the the blessings that I've been given but um but I think it was also a lot that I was like this can't fail so once the book came out and thankfully he did well then I was like, oh, God, now I have to write the sequel. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, and the thing is, I think a lot of people don't know that, you know, Ember was a, 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 a sold by itself. It was just a single mm. book. So it wasn't sold as a series, even though I told I told Penguin that it was a series. I, I basically, um, uh, you know, my agent and I just sold the one book. And I still remember my agent saying, um, uh, you know, I was like, is this a good idea? And she said, you know, do you believe in your work? And I had to really think, like, do I believe in my work? Like, do I believe that this book is going to sell enough copies that people will be like, you better give us a sequel? And ultimately I decided, you know, I've come this far. I've written for six years. Like I might as well, like I might as well go all the way. And so it really was about kind of that self-belief and like, okay, you know what? I do believe and I'm, I'm sticking with this. So um, so now, you know, we had sold the sequel, which was wonderful and, and, and holy because of my, my, my readers. Um, but, um, but now I had to perform and that was mm-hmm. really, really stressful and made me realize essentially that I couldn't write a book a year. Mm-hmm. That was when I figured that out, that I am not a book a year author. Um, and I probably never will be, which sorry, Penguin. Um, <laughs> but, um, but I write slowly because I do a lot of like, pondering and thinking and second guessing I also have two small children so Mm. I don't always have the time to like you know like I do technically write full-time but I think the pandemic is like a really great example of how that can change like right now I am writing and working um essentially like two-thirds time right Mm -hmm. um because there just there aren't enough hours in a day when you have to also help educate your children so um so I I definitely um definitely felt that pressure but then I got into the writing and it was just about story at that point, right? Mm. It was just about story. And it was like, you know, how do I tell the most, you know, how do I tell a story that's true to these characters? That's true to this world I've created. How do I show, um, how do I show this world that reflects the things that matter to me and to that matter to people who look like me yeah. and to people who have the same background as me or who have gone through the same things as me? Because th- that's one of the things that, um, that struck me about, writing this book is like I wrote what I wanted to read yeah you know I wanted to read about a brown girl who's a a hero I wanted to read about a brown boy who's a hero I I wanted them to be to care about each other right Mm. not like other other people and I wanted a world that reflected the problems that I saw within my own you know family and extended family and people 
mm-hmm. right? Problems that sort of uniquely, uh, or not, not necessarily uniquely, but that predominantly affect people of color, especially at that time, um, Muslims, mm. because there were so many wars in Muslim countries at that point in time, and so many issues and so many problems. And I really wanted to look, to look at, and you know, even though there's no religion in, in Ember, there is the concept of refugees. There is mm. that concept of extrajudicial jailings. There is that concept of sort of being hunted and hated, you know, because of your background. And all of those things were reflections of sort of what I was seeing happening amongst, you know, what I think of as my people. Mm. Mm. Well, and I think, you know, the series itself to what you've just sort of said is a, is a, is a YA fantasy series, but it's incredibly tough as well. It's got subjects of extreme violence and genocide and deep personal losses and so much more in this very complex sort of tapestry. Did you ever worry about what that was for a teen reader? Um, you know what's really funny is I've never had a teen reader write to me or speak to me at an event or mm. you know anything like that and say you know you really shouldn't have put this in the book and the thing is is teen readers will tell you when yeah. they don't like something right so it's not like oh well you haven't heard that because you know they're not going to say anything to you that's completely false teen readers will absolutely tell you when they don't like a book or when mm-hmm. they don't like something in a book I cannot tell you the number of emails I've gotten from teen <laughs> readers who are like, oh, you know, I had to read your book for class. And, you know, I thought this part was good, but this was really boring. You know, like that, that yeah. is 100% happened. And it's, you know, it's fine. I actually sort of, I think those, those emails are actually kind of funny. So um, <laughs> um, that doesn't mean I want to read too many of them, but no. I do think they're funny when they come across my desk. Um, but I've never had a teen reader say like, oh, this is too much for me. I couldn't, couldn't handle it. That mm. is, that is, and I, and I think it's because we do underestimate teenage readers a lot as adults Mm. I think that we and I think we underestimate teenagers in general as adults Mm -hmm. and I think you see it when you look at the way teenagers are treated I mean they're so so often you know you have like adult men who feel like it's perfectly fair to you know shout at you know a teenage girl who's an activist Mm -hmm. or you know who's a philanthropist or who's trying to do good in the world who's an author you know someone who's trying to to make the world better to sort of you know create a better space for herself and they're so 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 scared of it and they're so offended by it right it's like how dare you take up space in the world how dare you think that you should take up space in the world and so I've never and and that's something that I it makes me sad that that teen teenagers have to deal with that so I think that in general in general teenagers have to deal with a lot of that kind of thing and so I never worried about it in my books I what I actually found fascinating is it was often adult readers mm. who would come to me and say, why did you put the threat of rape in your book? Mm. Why is there so much death in your book? Why is there, you know, a child being whipped in your book? This isn't realistic. And it would always shock me because I was like, have you read the news? I was going to say. Like, do you know what happens in a war zone? Like, do you, do you understand? And I, I remember very early on, I had an um, you know, a, an incident where a couple of adult readers, um, and, and these were adult female white readers mm-hmm. who basically mm-hmm. said, you know, there's too much threat of rape in this book and, you know, it's, it's done for effect kind of thing. Mm. And I remember being really shocked and taken aback because it was so clear to me that that was coming from a place of privilege, a place of like, if you don't live or have never been to countries where 
something like rape can destroy not just you as a person, but like your social connections, mm. your your family connections, your ability to potentially even see your children, your ability to exist within your community. Like it was so clear that there was no knowledge of that. There was no understanding that that is a real thing that happens to thousands of women across the world. And I'm not talking about in America, right? Though it does happen mm. in America too, of course. But I'm talking about across the world in places that are not like, you know, that don't necessarily have the resources to, to help rape, rape survivors the way that you might find in, in America if you're lucky, right? Mm, mm. And I was very, very sort of taken aback and surprised by that reaction because it seems so close-minded to me. Mm. And that's when I actually really started understanding that people really hadn't read that in a book before. They hadn't read a book with this type of very sort of gritty, real mm. world inspiration, um, which quite frankly, just made me more inspired to make it even more real. So that's the point at which, you know, for Torch, I did all this research into, um, into prisons, the mm. world's worst prisons. Oh, I read wow. all these, like, I read like these human rights watch reports about prisons in Syria um, and prisons um, in, in Russia. Um, and in, you know, all these places that are sort of, you know, known for not necessarily caring a ton about, um, about their prisoners. Um, mm. And I read about, you know, interrogation methods, and I read, you know, and I read about, you know, the experimentations that were done during World War II, like in oh. an attempt to really understand, like, what happens in yeah. these war zones, like, so that not 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 to shock, not to make the reading experience unpleasant, but just so that I could put in enough that we realize this is no joke, right? And that there's no guarantee that these these characters are going to come out of this stuff because that's what real life is right you don't know yeah yeah and, and, and you know that is very evident on the page in a care, in a careful way and I think that's you've done that with such care the research speaks to that but also the care you have for the characters as well you are not doing this as you said for shock value or for just to get attention no not at all it really is just about trying to look at what happens in war zones what happens to refugees what happens to people who are essentially children of war like that is that that mm. is what they were born into and that's often what they stay in th that that is the state in which they remain until they can escape if they can escape mm. and and looking at that and asking like what's the cost right like it's not yeah. it's never you know it's never cost free <laughs> you know there's no. always something you know, there's always something that 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 you know something that happens and um i remember reading this story um there were two stories by one of my favorite journalists. His name was Anthony Shadid. He has sadly since passed away, but he wrote a story about a bookseller in Iraq. And he wrote this story about this bookseller who was super brave and, you know, had kind of, um, you know, set up this bookstore in the, in the midst of the Iraq war, you know, when, when America had invaded Iraq. And, um, and, you know, you get a look at his life and kind of his, his hopes and just who he is as a person, a very practical man, you know, he's just kind of like, well, people still need to read, right? Mm, mm. And then a few years later, there was a follow-up story, and it was about a bombing that killed this bookseller. Mm. And I, I read and you know did a copy edit on that story, um, or you know proof on that story. I can't remember what exactly it was, but I remember reading it and being so upset mm. because I remembered the original story, um, yeah. hearing about this bookseller, and and I I just. I was so, so, so sad. But that feeling of sort of like, that's the real world. That is what I try to kind of convey in these books, because I think yeah. it's important 
that young people understand that there's a cost to war because these are the people who are going to grow up and be our elected officials, yes, you know, and and be in charge and 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 we'll be deciding, right? Like right. we'll be deciding oh, whether yeah. we go to war or not. And I think that if we just remembered the human cost a little bit more, maybe it wouldn't be something that um, that was an answer. Maybe right. we can one day get to not. And I'm not at all saying that these books will do this. I'm just saying that I hope that collectively as a as a as a you know sort of global community we will mm. come to the place where we realize that you know we should never look to war as an answer yeah there should and, always be a, a different answer and even in the way people use language now about war and like you know even the joking sense of like well it's going to be the new civil war or in this climate that we're in right now yeah. what that actually what that kind of actually means like what you're insinuating is, yeah it's 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 pretty heavy you know mm. it, it is it's a heavy thing and I've always again kind of found it interesting that it's often the people who have the least to lose who mm-hmm. kind of can look at it with the most lightheartedness right yeah yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. Um, because it's like well you know like I I I don't know if um I don't know if our readers will will remember this but when we were in the Iraq war and the Afghanistan wars, there was a a feature in the post called Faces of the Fallen. Mm. And every week we, and sometimes it was, I think it was every week we put up, um, uh, you know, faces and and histories of the soldiers, American soldiers who had died in Iraq and Afghanistan. Mm. And I, their ages like were just heartbreaking. It was like 18, 21, 25, 22. I mean, it was so sad, you know? Mm. And then it's like, for what? (laughs) You know? Yeah. (laughs) Like, what did we, what did we, you know, what did we get this, you know, what did we get out of that? And for for who, and and there, everyone's going to have an opinion. Some people are going to say like, hey, we know we made made the world safer, perhaps, Mm. you know, perhaps not. Right. But, um, but again, I think the question is sort of, me really trying to ask this question like you know what 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 is the cost of war right on all parties you know and with your books being like translated into different languages have you heard differently from readers across the world is that sort of a different reaction to certain elements of the story oh absolutely it's really it's really really interesting to me um a lot of my european readers and middle eastern readers are like, oh my God, this is the first book, you know, in 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 this age group that I've read that that actually talks about these things. Wow. Um, or, you know, this is really accurate. Um, mm. I've gotten, I remember getting um, an email from a, 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 a refugee who um, who had said that, you know, she she had resettled in Britain um, and was a refugee from Sudan. And she had said that, you know, she had not read a book um, that talked about um, that talked about the violence specifically against women, and she said, "Thank you for talking about that." And mm. I found that very sad, you know, but also very moving, you know, because it it it's like I do think that we should be able to talk about it more, for the at the very least, so that people realize that it is a real thing that happens in the world. I mean, the UN didn't classify rape and war as a war crime until I think it was like two thousand and eight. Wow. Which is bonkers to me. Like yeah. that's, when, you know, like that's, like that should have been one of the first things that's classified as a war crime, like back when, you know, the UN first was founded. Right. Right. Um, 
And I mean, that just kind of tells you that women don't necessarily matter to people who are in charge mm. that, you know, our bodies and our, our histories and what we survive and what we go through, that it doesn't matter to, mm. to people who make decisions. And, and that that's a shame. And that has to change. Yeah. <laughs> on so many levels, on so many levels. Well, and hearing from fans as well, I want to know is what have some have been the most amazing fan reactions? Obviously there's been moments like that of pure emotional vulnerability, but what if some of the other ones as well, like fun people chasing you down the street or any, has anyone recognized no, you? No, 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 I don't get recognized, which is totally fine. I don't think I would ever want to get recognized. <laughs> I had a brief, you know, I was at BookCon with mm-hmm. Renee Atia. Um, and we were um, walking the floor at BookCon, and this was, mm-hmm. I think, 2018, maybe, or something. Anyway, we're really thinking about it, and then all of a sudden, people started coming up to us and being like, oh, my God, you know, Renee, I read your book, and oh. she and I were both like, wait, people know who we are. <laughs> like, who? Huh? Yeah, and then at that point, we were like, okay, we, maybe we should get off the floor. So the only place I've ever been recognized is, like, you know, if I'm at a book conference. I mean, that, that, that makes sense that makes sense <laughs> have you had any kind of weird like fan like requests or videos or um I I've had um I'd say my fan interaction is almost entirely positive um mm-hmm. I also think that people realize that I'm very willing to like block report right you know <laughs> ignore yep. like I never ignore yep. I usually block a report or mute um mm-hmm. so you know, if I have had the occasional negative fan interaction, I'm usually just like, bye. Um, <laughs> and then everything else is very positive. Um, I think one of my favorite moments was there's a French reader named Audrey. Mm-hmm. And um, after many years of her tweeting and, you know, us talking to each other and, you know, her really loving the books and getting so many French people to read them. Um, we actually met in 2018 oh. um, and, and it was really wonderful. It was just such a wonderful moment. And I was so happy to finally meet her and I gave her a giant hug and like, it was really cool. That was one of my happiest sort of fan reader moments. Um, yeah. And I think your fans are particularly protective of you as well in terms of even now this week, as we head into the final few sort of counter zones they're very they're on guard for any books that might have got on sale early accidentally they're reporting them to us as the publisher they're like you need to get this under control they're like and in a, in a really nice way but just you know we want to make sure that you have that Saba Saba has the best experience ever how can we help you give that to her they are just such a beautiful varied group of readers and they're so positive and like they're absolutely I know you know, and I never participate in this. It's only that I hear about it. But there are absolutely arguments about, you know, is Helene a villain or is she just an oppressor? Is right. Laya better or is Helene better? Is Elias actually a good boyfriend or does he suck? Like, <laughs> you know, like there's there's all these. And I actually, I have no issue with those. I think people should be free to talk about whatever. But I've never sort of, um, you know, knock on wood, this never happens. I'm literally knocking on wood. That was me knocking on wood. Um, but, um, <laughs> I've never had this sort of experience where people are unkind. They're always very, very respectful and sweet and just very positive. And, you know, they tease me, right? Because I'm awful and will be like, I'm going to torture your face, (laughs) you know, and they'll be like, why are you the worst? You know, but it's, it's all done in very good fun and very, you know, very positive. And I get lots of, you know, ma'am, if you, 
if you hurt my favorites, I'll, you know, I'll never stop crying. And, you know, it, it's all yeah. very fun and, and, you know, very, um, lighthearted, very lighthearted. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and you are very active on social media and, and out there as an author, particularly on probably Twitter and Instagram. Have you struggled with that? How available that seems to make you to fans in terms of having a line of difference of just who you are as an author and who you are as a person? I think I really only show, um, I really only show my authentic self. Mm-hmm. So it's not really that hard. Like I am a goofball and a dork and I absolutely make vegetables talk and I would do that whether I had Instagram or whether I didn't right like my friends all know this about me like I was talking to a really old friend who's known me since I was a little girl and I was telling her about these veggie videos or maybe she saw one I I can't remember and she was like that's so that's so you that's such a subba thing to do she's like I she's like do people realize like it's not even a public like it's a bit it's just it's just it's just who you are um so um so it's 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 felt easy for me because I I don't have to put much of an effort in I'm not trying to be someone I'm not right you know I'm not like my brand is you know ABC it's just like I am you know I am who I am and that's a little bit scattered and you know a little bit weird and (laughs) involves a lot of music and talking inanimate objects and you know me being mean to your favorite characters and like I'm very unapologetic about it. And I think that that makes for social media that's much easier to handle. <laughs> no, I think I, I, who you are is who you are. And it definitely works on the channel. So I love it. I love it. Um, I have a question. To get back to the series, so much of it centers around, for me as a reader, the feeling of family, of the Lia and her brothers and her parents and her grandparents as well. And Elias and his, the relationship he has with his mother and his father and Helene and her sisters and well as, the fa- as well as her parents. Family very clearly important to you yes yes um I my I felt like my family was all I had growing up Mm -hmm. um you know I grew up in this very small town in the middle of nowhere California and it there was not many people there who look like me if any right um and um my family was like my safe place you know Mm -hmm. that's that's who accepted me as I was and that's who you know, who loved me. And, um, you know, that was, um, that, that meant that I I was very close to my brothers, my two older Mm -hmm. brothers, you know, we are kind of each other's biggest fans and also each other's harshest critics. And we have a, you know, a close bond that I hope, you know, never, never goes away. Um, And really it is all the facets of that bond, you know, within family that I end up exploring sort of what if I didn't have those Mm. people like what if I didn't have those friendships or you know what if I didn't have a family that's you know my mom is incredibly supportive of me always has been um and I've had people say is the commandant based off your mom and I'm (laughs) like no my goodness like not even close right and and my mom when she read Ember she was like oh my god why did you make her so bad everyone's gonna think you have a horrible mother (laughs) <laughs> and uh, so actually in the in the acknowledgments of ember the very first line is you know or one of the very first lines is you know to you know thank you to my mother who is the exact opposite of the commandant mm-hmm. because i was like yeah. i don't want people to think that she's so um so i have a close relationship with my family but you know i've also like any human had and witnessed great family drama right mm-hmm. i mean i'm pakistani like family drama is what we do you know it's it's yeah. just part it's just part of 
part of sort of the <laughs> it's part of who we are especially when you're Punjabi like me we're sort of like considered like the fiery <laughs> you know hot tempered <laughs> tempered short short tempered people of, of Pakistan so um or at least that's that's kind of what my my family's always told me so um so there's definitely lots lots of family drama and stuff and I, I was able to kind of look at the not necessarily things that happen but the way it makes people feel and the relationships and how they can break down um, mm-hmm. that, that made me, um, focus a lot on those in, in the writing of the series. Mm-hmm. When you said it before, your ethnic heritage is very important to you sort of as your own identity, but then also bringing it to life through these characters on the page. Can you tell me a little bit more about what that's been like? Yeah. So, um, I'm Pakistani American. I'm also Muslim American. And so, you know, I have the ethnic heritage of, of, of having a Pakistani background, um, that's actually Pakistani British. Um, I was I was born in Britain, um, and my my father lived there from when he was a young man. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, there's also the religious heritage. You know, I'm Muslim. My parents are Muslim. They're observant. Um, so am I. Um, and both of those things ended up playing a part in the writing of this book. So there was sort of being able to call, use Pakistani names and foods and mm. you know some to some degree here in their clothing or you know the way our cities look you know mm. the way our cities feel you know the concept of storytelling uh the, mm. the language was a huge thing that I, I i drew on my my ethnic heritage for i drew on punjabi um which is you know my regional dialect i drew on urdu which is the the, the country's one of the country's primary languages pakistan's primary language um, and then on the religious side, um, you know, I drew on a lot of um, mythology that is connected to Islam, but isn't necessarily Islamic. So there's this sort of idea that jinn are, you know, um, uh, an Islamic, a bit of Islamic mythology, and that's not actually entirely true. They're, mm-hmm. they're, they predate um, the, the rise of Islam, jinn, the stories of jinn do. Um, and they're also found all over um, South South Asia, um, Southeast Asia, and the Middle East and North Africa. Um, so, but 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 there there are generally you know there are still things from from Islamic myth that I that I've drawn upon, um, and and some of the jinn stories are 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 part of that. Um, and then, actually, sort of this idea of faith in the book. It's not. Um, it's not, there is no religion in the book, right? Mm-hmm. But there is the idea of like sort of having faith, you know, faith in yourself, faith in the universe, you know, faith that things will be better, mm-hmm. um, faith that we know you're not alone. Um, and that's something that I drew drew upon a lot um, to kind of help my characters get through some of the harder times, you know, especially faith in yourself, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and so that was something that I was able to kind of draw from, you know, but by kind of looking at, at faith in general within, within religions and how you can transform that into into something more personal. Mm. When you said it, the mythology in the series is, is is not a westernized mythology that we often see in sort of the European fantasy stuff. Um, is that something that like you were really aware of? And have you heard from readers about that in terms of them understanding it, wanting to know more? Yeah, it is something I'm really aware of because I didn't see it. Right, like mm. I put gin in the book because I'd never seen a gin in a book. Mm. Everything I'd seen about Jin was like, you know, Aladdin <laughs> and like, you know, <laughs> yeah. I dream of genie and it was like really annoying. Um, yeah. And and the stuff maybe, you know, here and there you might see something in adult fantasy, but it all felt so like exploitative. Right. Um, and I I didn't want it to feel that way. I wanted it to be organic and I wanted it to be 
a true part of the world um, and really deeply ingrained in the world as opposed to look at this thing that is different and from a faraway place and let's right. make it villainous and and you know hard to understand let's let's other let's other this yeah. this concept and i didn't want to other the concept as you go through the series you know you kind of see that you know the jinn very much start as sort of these othered um, beings but you know by the time we're getting to to book two and and book three we're kind of we're sort of starting to see things from their perspective mm. Mm. and I think so much what what you did with it as well is the introduction of it, it you're right it felt in the world and not from a distance like we weren't introduced 101 style this is what this world is it's like it's part of the world deal with it yes yeah yeah and the other part that I think has obviously been really seismic has been that the covers for this series, having the US, they changed midway through. So originally there was the to- uh, Ember in the Ashes and A Torch Against the Night had a certain look. And then in time for A Reaper at the Gates, there was a package rechange for the covers and it brought forward a um, person of colour onto the cover. And it was a very exciting moment for so many people, but then there was a weird kind of slice to it where a few people went, oh, my looks aren't going to match. Was it was it a very was it an odd moment for you in that time to be so like it was a realization of a dream? I'm assuming. You know, I was really, um, I was I was really taken aback by how many people were upset that their books weren't going to match, and I think the reason why is because that was the exact moment when the Charlottesville protest <clears throat> had mm. happened, and you know we had had literal neo Nazis marching through in American City with torches, saying really awful, racist, horrible things. And these co- this cover change, you know, was really important to me that, you know, these characters reflect um, the inside of a book, right? And that kids like my sons or my niece or, you know, kids who are not related to me, right? Like all, right, that, right, right. all the, the, the little brown, the little brown children in the world um, could look at these books and see somebody who looks like them or their sister or their mom or, you know, whoever, right? Um, and I was really sh- sort of surprised that that wouldn't be at the forefront of people's minds, but I also understood it because I think that's how you get to having neo-Nazi marches mm. in the first place. It's mm. not at the forefront of a lot of people's minds. To them, it is more important to have the books match. And they're not really thinking about like representation or what this cover change might mean for people who don't look like them Mm. um, or people who you know who look like me I mean one of the first covers I ever saw with a brown girl on it was um, uh, when Dimple met Rishi wow yeah beautiful beautiful it's a great book and I remember being like and it's that's Sandhya Menon by the way um, Mm -hmm. for anyone who wants to pick it up (laughs) and um, I remember being like wow that's awesome you know, and that was one yeah. of the first. I don't know if it was the first, but within YA, it was one of the first. It was before, it was long before Ember. Right. Um, and, you know, see, that, that's the kind of thing that you see. And it kind of gives you courage to be like, okay, let's do this. You know, and so Ember was one of the first YA fantasies yeah. to have, you know, that brown girl on the cover. But, you know, The Bells by Danielle Clayton was, um, was for, for, you know, I think one of the, if not the first YA fantasy um, it was it was one of the very first Y fantasies at all who had a person mm. of color, a, a model on on the cover, sort of unabashedly on that cover. And that that was a game changer, right? And so for you know, Ember Ember was after that. And you know, it, it is it is authors and and houses that make those choices that makes it easier for someone like me to say, yes, let's do this. 
Um, and so I'm, I'm thankful for, for that. And I'm also thankful that, you know, it turned out so that, you know, I, at this point, that cover change has been in place for what, three years now, something like Mm -hmm. that, two years, something. And I have gotten, and this is not an exaggeration. I have gotten thousands, thousands of messages just about thank you for putting a brown girl on the cover. Thank you for putting someone who looks like me on the cover. Thank you for putting someone who looks like my cousin on the cover, whatever. Right. right? Like over and over again. And, and it's, that is a thing that makes me not, you know, I'm just like, well, if your books don't match, take off the dust jackets. Right. (laughs) Yeah. If that's, if that's the hill that you're willing to die on, I can't help you. Yeah. Pretty much. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Well, I have to ask shifting a little bit, ending the series is such a massive deal. What was it like sitting down at the desk on that first day of going into A Sky Beyond the Storm and writing what you knew was going to be the end? I wrote the first chapter first. That doesn't always happen. Sometimes mm-hmm. you write a middle chapter first and then it takes you like 12 chapters to get to it. But I wrote the first chapter first. And it was really emotional. I was like, oh, my God, I can't <laughs> believe that, you know, this is happening. I'm here. Um, and it was it was really tricky to write because I wanted to sort of throw back and call back to the beginning of Ember, but I was trying to figure out a way to do that. So readers, when they read the book, I think will understand what I mean, but, mm-hmm. um, but, uh, but it was very emotional. And then it was just, it wasn't emotional at all. It was like brass wow. tacks, get down and get it done, you know, write that book. Yeah. Um, so at that point I was just like, you know, it was very much um, slogging through the writing trenches you know right. what needs to happen next you know is this enough motivation is this you know is this goal does it make any sense lots of rewriting lots of scrapping lots of you know yelling at the computer and myself um and stopping and rewriting and stopping and rewriting I mean this is like any other of my books like my I would love to be an artist who has like a peaceful artistic process <laughs> my artistic process is a hundred percent a battle it's me grappling with my characters it's a very unpleasant and violent and you know ugly (laughs) (laughs) I Um, feel like I feel like it's the experience in the same good way that the readers go through a way we all go through a real journey yeah my hope is I always want people I I love that feeling Felicity like when I lift my eyes up from a book and I'm like wait where am I yeah it's so rare it's so rare to get that feeling but I love that feeling I like live for it right yeah yeah and that's that is what I want people to feel like I want them to wherever they are in sky in torch reaper ember I want them to look up from when they stop reading and be like what just hit me like what just happened where did that five hours go where did that five hours go where am I am I still in my world I want them to dream about it (laughs) (laughs) I want people to have you know commandant nightmares Um, (laughs) I mean I think that's already happened so that's fine But also it feels, it does feel like to what you're saying in terms of like the journey through it and the slogan, I, I, your books, in a, and this is a compliment and it may not sound like it, feel like there's blood on the page from you. I, do, you yeah. do you know what I mean? Yeah, there is. And I think it's because there, I mean, there is blood on the page. My, <laughs> my, um, uh, the, the way I think of it is like, it does feel a little bit like a battle. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's a battle with the character. Sometimes it's a battle with myself usually it's a battle with myself let's be honest um sometimes it's a battle with my demons 
right? Mm-hmm. I'm a writer. All writers have demons, I think. Yeah. If you don't, uh, good for you. But <laughs> I, I think most, most writers have demons, right? And so it's, it's a battle with those a lot of the time too. Um, and sort of looking at the weakest, worst parts of some of these characters and bringing them to the fore and, and knowing that, you know, part of that is looking at those things in myself because that's what I use to kind of plumb, you know, what, what these characters might be going through. Um, mm-hmm. I don't think everyone self inserts and that's cool. That's good for you. If you don't, I'm <laughs> definitely one of those people who's who self inserts and it's sort of like, what would I do in the situation? Right. And I have to, and it, it sort of helps to be, I'm kind of one of those people who, um, tends to shift as the situation calls for it, you know, um, like, uh, like water as opposed to wood, you know, or rock. Right. Yes. Um, and so that makes it a little bit easier, I think, for me to put myself in the situation of say, Helene you know, who I don't necessarily relate to in many right. other ways, but I do relate to the fact that, you know, she is underestimated because she's a woman. Right. Um, and, and so, you know, I, I can put myself and it's like trying to find the humanity in all these characters. And I think that can be a very bloody process. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. Oh yeah. Well, and you spent almost o- over a decade, not almost, you spent over a decade with these characters was was there anyone in particular that it was really hard to say goodbye to when you were writing that last scene, whatever it may be, and I'm not asking for spoilers, um, was there someone you were just like, I don't want this relationship that I have with this character to ever end? There was, so I actually, I wrote about this on, on Instagram. I wrote about sort of saying goodbye to Elias and how, how sad that was because I feel like he's really helped me grow as a person and as a writer. Mm-hmm. But there was, to, to speak to scene, there was one scene at the end um, and every time I read that scene, I get really emotional and upset and I slam the book shut and I'm like, push it away from me. And I'm like, I don't want to talk to you, Subba. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I can't say obviously what it is. Mm-hmm. It's probably not what people expect. I think that when they read the book, they'll probably think they know don't what I. it is, but it's, it's not, I think it's not going to be the character who you think it's going to be. I was going to say, we're going to come back in like in a year and have this chat with that answer to the question. With the answer to that question. Yeah. But um, that character, I, I was really sad when, yeah. when I got to that scene. Okay. Okay. Well, everyone who's listening is all like, oh my God. <laughs> um, <laughs> and as we're recording, we've got about 10, almost just over 10 days until this book comes out. How nervous are you right now? It's done. I can't do anything. You know, right. I mean? like, <laughs> like the book is finished. I think, um, I think five years ago, I would have been freaking out, but I right. have learned, you know, if the book gets spoiled, that sucks, but that's life. If mm. people hate it, it sucks, but that's also life. If people love it, that's awesome. Yay. Um, if, you know, something else horrible happens and the books doesn't get shipped out and everything goes upside down, that's life, <laughs> you know, like yeah. it, it's, it's sort of, right. I've, I'm, I've kind of gotten to the point with this series where I'm at peace with how I ended it. Right. I am very, very happy with the book that I wrote. I think I wrote the absolute best book that I was capable of writing. And I think it exceeded my own sort of personal expectations of what I would be able to do as a writer um I went back and, and that's not the case for all of them right like I'll read Ember and I'll be like oh my god I can't believe you did that Ugh. you know like you need to fix that you need to fix you know I absolutely have that that feeling when I read some of the earlier books but for now I'm very very proud of Sky. so my final question if you could go back and tell a pre-Ember in the Ashes suburb to hear anything about the next 12-ish years 
as her journey for an author, what would you tell her? This is a deeply unsatisfying answer for which I apologize. <laughs> I would not tell past about anything. Oh, I would be like, good luck, bro. I'm not saying <laughs> anything to you. Um, and the reason is that I think the books wouldn't be what they are unless I had kind of encountered them and uncovered them and written them and, you know, struggled with them the way that I did. Mm-hmm. I think the, I think the, the struggle is visible on the page, but my hope is that, that it's in a positive way. Yeah. That people can tell that I really agonize over word choice because hopefully they realize it's it's a smooth read. And that generally the smoother the read, the more people suffer, <laughs> 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 right? The, the, the harder it is. So, um, so my hope is that um, that people will feel that when they read the book and that they'll know that this was, you know, something that's sort of um, so, something I had to experience. It wasn't, yeah. it wasn't necessarily that I wrote the book. It's that, you know, the book happened to me. Yeah. And um, that I think that happening <laughs> could only occur in the circumstances in which it did, which is mm. that I did not know that I would be a writer. I did not know that Ember would get published. I did not know that it would be successful. I did not know that it would have a, a readership like it does. Um, I keep the four books in my living room in the fireplace. I have like a, a, a non-working fireplace. That's just, I was going to say, <laughs> you know, it's not, it's not so that I can light them on fire. It's like, there's no wood or, or anything in it. It's a, it's a fireplace. It's basically just for decoration. And um, I have a couple of, of bookends and I just, the four books are sitting between them. And sometimes I'm sitting there and I'll just look at them and I just have no idea how they came into the world. It's like the same mm. way I feel. And I'm sure parents will relate to this if they're out there. The same thing happens when I occasionally look at my kids and I'm like, where did you come from? <laughs> like small human, right? Like, where, you know, like, where, like, when did you show up in my life? And now you're big and you like walk around like this is your house because it is, you know? And so, um, and, and so that's kind of how I feel about Ember sometimes is that it does all feel very, very unreal to me still. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's okay, I think. Mm-hmm. Well, wherever they came from, it was truly someplace magical. And the way that you have brought them to life has been a joy to read and a joy to love. Yeah, so uh, as we as we head into uh, A Sky Beyond the Storm being released on Tuesday, December the 1st, I congratulate you, Summer, on this. Um, tomorrow you'll be joining us on the podcast again as we go in-depth about each of the characters. This will be a spoiler-tastic episode where yeah. we're going to ask some of the pressing questions about the most beloved, the hardest scenes she had to write, the characters she wished she didn't kill off. And more. <laughs> <laughs> I like that she laughs and more. So we'll see you tomorrow and thank you very much, Summer. Thank you, Felicity. Thank you for having me.